This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. What sort of lives will we lead in an environmentally compromised future? Barry Johnsberg tackles this issue in Catch Me If I Fall, an adolescent novel where identical twins, Ashley and Aidan, fight to protect each other in uncertain times. So, Barry, welcome to 3CR. David, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, the notion that we are living in the future creeps up on us slowly in this novel. There's a a reference early on. Mr. Meredith, the teacher, the school teacher, checks UV levels before letting children out to play. And that's sort of almost normal practice today. Yes, that's that's true. And to some extent, that's exactly what I wanted to happen in the book, because it's told from the point of view of, of Ashley Delator, uh, one of the main characters. And obviously for Ashley, the world that she inhabits is perfectly normal and natural. So she doesn't really go to any extravagant lengths to explain to the reader that we're actually set in a time beyond our own you know, current time. So, so for her, the world around her is just the world she's always known. So, yeah, the, the realisation hopefully creeps up on the readers gradually uh, that this is not uh, 2020 Australia. And also the conventional things like uh, elite schools comes up, the notion of privilege, and these are very normal concerns. They happen in our daily lives already. Absolutely, yes. We we have those schools and uh, they seem to be doing very well, certainly financially. So, so yes, and and also the the rather extreme weather. I mean, I'm I'm up here in Darwin, uh, but in Australia generally, we're pretty used to extreme weather events. So, to some extent, at the beginning of the novel, uh, there are no clear indications that, as I say, this isn't uh, contemporary times. Well, if you'll allow me. It's about two-thirds of the way through that we get an explanation. Rising sea levels caused by global warming that melted the ice caps did this to Australia in a very short period of time. A crazy percentage of people, 85% is the accepted estimate, lived within 50 kilometres of the coast. 20 million Australians, most of whom over time became homeless. You know this from school, right? I didn't say anything. I was fixated on the map. I couldn't see where home was. Mum waited a few seconds and then carried on. Some tried to migrate to other countries, but nearly all were turned back. Many people died at sea in ferocious storms that swept most of the world. So we have a compromised future here where the environment has basically uh, created class systems and challenged the way we lead our lives. Yeah, I I guess so. Although if you look at it another way, um, what this imagined future seems to indicate is that to some extent, the inequalities that are already here in our system have simply been accentuated. So, you know, there seems to be a trend, at least there seems to me, for the rich to be getting richer and the poor to be getting poorer, um, despite all of the, the advances we seem to have made. And Probably if we have a global catastrophe, um, I can't see that necessarily changing. In fact, as I say, maybe it becomes more extreme and the the, the people who survive are going to be divided into absolutely those who have everything and those who have virtually nothing. 
At least that was the way in which I saw it. There's a case in point where at, towards the end of the novel, there's a character called Micah, which is an interestingly biblical name, criticises Ashley, uh, almost abuses her because he points out there are the haves and the have-nots. Hmm. Yes, that's right. He is he is angry, again, without wishing to give away too much of the story. Ashley and Aidan find themselves uh, outside of their world of privilege and exposed to a, a world that they really didn't imagine existed. And that's the, the, the people who are living at the fringes of society, the, the bottom tier, if you like. And yeah, Micah um, expresses something that I think some of the others uh, feel, but don't articulate, which is that they don't see why someone from the privileged section of society should be taking their hospitality when all that the, the privileged people have done is to subdue um, those who haven't got any money. So he's, he's angry, perhaps not surprisingly. There's another interesting character, Charlotte, who's a friend of Ashley's. She's from the privileged class but her whole work ethic has had to change in order to maintain that sense of privilege. Yes, I mean, the, the, the idea that I got was that, OK, we've got the extremely privileged, which is the, um, the environment that Ashley and Aidan uh, live in. We've got um, those who are really poor living on the fringes of society. But there's also a kind of a middle class, if you like, of people who uh, are there to help the privileged to stay in power. And Charlotte is, is a member of that community. And what she uh, believes is that by dint of hard work, she could perhaps become part of the privileged upper class, or at the very least, stop herself from sinking into the, um, into the, the, the very low class and all of the dangers that come with that. I can almost see that existing today. We have children in schools being very anxious, working incredibly hard just to keep up and open up opportunities that they see for themselves in the future. It's changed their lifestyle so that they can't be children. Yes, that's that's true as well. And I think probably one of the things that I was attempting to do in this novel, I'm not saying I, I, I was doing this consciously, was was to take some of the um, the forces, I guess, that operate in society today and thinking what happens if all of this becomes a little bit more extreme. And as I said earlier on, uh, you know, the, the rich do seem to be getting richer today and the poor do seem to be getting poorer. And yes, sort of education uh, for a lot of people is the way out of poverty traps. So this was just sort of like taking it maybe to the next level and just having fun with that idea and, and seeing what would happen in a, in a fictional setting. The next suggestion for what's going to happen in the future is this notion of artificial intelligence, which is the area in which Aidan and Ashley's mother works. And you quote Turing and Hawking, uh, advances in artificial intelligence will bring about a revolution in machine thinking. So there's now this ultra reliance on artificial intelligence in this environmentally compromised world. 
Yes, and, and again, I think that's sort of realistic. I, in most of my books, I don't do much in the way of research, quite frankly, because, well, two reasons. One, I'm a bit lazy. And two, doing the research gets in the way of actually doing the writing, which is the stuff that I find most fun. Um, but I, I've always been fascinated by the, the idea of AI, and I've followed some of the arguments from people like Elon Musk that says this is the greatest danger facing humanity at the moment, even above and beyond things like climate change. The idea that we are in the process of creating artificial intelligence, which can become totally independent of, human, of humans, and that they can build better and better versions of themselves to the extent where we are creating a kind of a super intelligence that no longer has need for humanity. And in fact, given humanity has caused all the problems in the world, maybe that's not a bad idea for a, a new intelligence to actually get rid of humans. So all of that fascinating sort of moral, ethical and technological detail, I kind of got into all of that. I found it very interesting. Another aspect which is also very conventional is the notion of adolescence maturing. And you have your identical twins, Ashley and Aidan, and they are developing, but they diverge. Uh, the story is told from Ashley's perspective more than Aidan's, but they're growing up, they're maturing, and they're starting to address these ethical issues and almost coming to different conclusions. Yes, that's right. Well, I mean, Ashley, to some extent, is is driven kicking and screaming into uh, into that part of her education. Aidan is is quicker to pick up on the idea of um, privilege and the fact that there are uh, so many things wrong with the world and that you know they don't really know too much because they they're living in a cloistered, very protected environment. Um, so Ashley starts off, uh, I think, as being a rather annoying kid. She's I think twelve or thirteen when the book starts. Um, she, she's very annoying and self-centered. And her character arc, I guess, takes in um, this sudden realization that all the privilege that she's enjoyed is not necessarily hers by right, and that there are other stories that she has been protected from. So, yeah, obviously, I'm, I'm hoping that my characters grow and develop throughout the course of the book. It would be a poor writer that doesn't do that. And I hope in interesting, challenging and maybe surprising ways. And then Aidan suffers an accident, and this forces Ashley to question her attachment to her twin brother. Yes. Um, I mean, again, if one perhaps should explain the, the title, and this is where the whole idea of the book came from, is that I stumbled oh, a couple of years back across, uh, I think, a well-worn phrase, which is that siblings should always be there for each other and to catch the other if the other one should fall. And I thought that probably is, makes an interesting idea for a, a book about family dynamics, where we have uh, siblings, one of whom takes that very, very seriously, in fact, makes it his life's mission to protect the other. And the other one accepts that devotion as her right. And I thought, OK, that's going to be an interesting sort of uh, uh, dynamic going on there. And yes, indeed, partway through the novel, Aidan literally does save Ashley's life. He catches her when she falls and in so doing has an accident that changes his view of the world and also Ashley's. 
And Ashley and Aidan then have to question their relationship, the value of it, and what they are both getting as they go down divergent paths. Yes, I mean, for, for Ashley in particular, because Aidan was always a little bit ahead of Ashley in terms of thinking about things. For Ashley, um, there, are, there are revelations that come pretty much one on top of the other that force about a, a change in her in her viewpoint and not just in terms of their own relationship but their relationship with their parents their relationship with the world outside well as you say there are some very important ethical questions to face the reality of the environmental change the notion of artificial intelligence and how we're going to incorporate it in our world but it's bedded down in a very realistic relationship between twins and how they see the world and how they learn to cope with it. So we're going to have to end the interview there, Barry, but the novel is Catch Me If I Fall, the author, Barry Johnsberg, and it is an Alan and Unwin release. So, Barry, thank you for talking with me today. David, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thanks for having me on your show. And, David, who else have you interviewed? Our final year of secondary school doesn't necessarily mark the end of something. It's more a beginning. Anna Morgan picks up on this notion in her latest work before the beginning. So, Anna, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have set your novel during schoolies week, and it can be a time of great change. Yes, I wanted to write about transition, which is a very classic teenage experience. You're always changing and always transforming from one stage to the next. Uh, And Schoolies Week for me really encapsulates that feeling in a very intense way. And it's one week where you're away with your friends celebrating uh, in this time when everything is up in the air and anything could happen. Now, your novel is told from the perspective of actually four characters, Grace, Noah, Casper and Elsie, and each represent a sort of awakening of a different facet of a teenager's life in some ways. Yes. Grace um, is sexuality. Yes, so Grace is going through a big shift that I haven't actually seen represented in YA literature much before, but is one that's very interesting to me, uh, which is she's going through a crisis of faith. uh, And she has been highly religious for most of her life. So Grace is suddenly experiencing this shift where she uh, is not sure of this faith that she's put so much of her own identity and her own worldview and shaped her life around, it's starting to crack a little bit. Uh, And coming into that as well is new questions about her sexuality, which is just on the brink of exploring. But it also goes or speaks towards those that have firm ideas. And then all of a sudden the world opens up and those firm ideas need adapting and morphing and changing. Exactly. I think when you have a very structured or rigid worldview, it can actually be quite vulnerable when you start to open up to new experiences that don't fit in this very rigid structure. And uh, then the whole thing can kind of come falling down all at once. And she makes a spontaneous decision at the start of the week to abandon her 
group of friends who she was going to school this week with and instead she tags along with her brother and this group of characters in my novel. So she's meeting new people, she's uh, finding out new experiences and also through meeting the stranger who they meet in the first night in the novel, Sierra, and that opens up a whole new world of possibilities for Grace. Another character is Noah. He represents in some ways anxiety, in particular anxiety associated with your ATAR score. Yes. A lot of people ask me if I have a favourite out of the characters and I don't have a favourite, but I have a particular soft spot for Noah uh, because I relate very much to that anxiety around end of school. I was a very academic student and so a lot of what I experienced comes out in Noah and his character. Um, He is extremely academic and has put a huge amount of pressure on himself for those final year exams. All of his schooling built up to this, this point uh, and he's putting pressure on himself to get a near-perfect score to get him into the top courses in the country and anything less is failure. But also then you've got this notion that he can get a top score so he will naturally gravitate towards medicine or law even though he may not necessarily be interested in them. That's right. And this was something that I noticed. I was in a very academic school and lots of my peers were also aiming for those top scores. And there was this very strange value judgment that was all about what are the university courses, firstly, that have the top scores? They must be the best. It doesn't matter what they are. It doesn't matter what you're studying. They must be the most prestigious anything less it's because you you weren't good enough to get into the one of those top three medicine or law or engineering and uh, Noah has completely internalized that I think partly because he's been so focused on trying to achieve this unattainable goal that he hasn't spent the time actually thinking thinking about what he wants himself what he wants to do what he'd be good at or naturally talented at Then there's Casper, who seems to be almost the opposite, creative, but disorganised. Yes, so Casper is an artist and he also has quite high expectations of himself in a different way. Uh, To him, his art is the most important thing and sometimes at the detriment to his other relationships uh, with his friends or with his sister Grace. Uh, And his focus is he really wants to get into this university course which is all based on a final folio and he has to present the folio the day after schoolies week Uh, and there's one artwork that he hasn't finished yet so over the week he is also trying to create this piece that has to get him into his dream course. Elsie then is a contrast because she doesn't necessarily see herself as equivalent or as Uh, a high achiever like the others? Yeah, that's right. I think Elsie has really felt like she's been underestimated or overlooked. Uh, She's one of those students who kind of coasts along in the middle, not necessarily really talented at any one thing in particular. And especially because her two closest friends have been Noah, who is such an academic high achiever, and Casper, who has his art, which is a really distinctive talent. And she's, she's kind of felt caught in the middle and she doesn't really know um, where her talents lie. And she's also been caught up in uh, a relationship with Casper, a bit of an unequal relationship where she has romantic feelings for him. And she has kind of been kept on the edge, never quite sure if he wants, wants that with her as well, or just wants to be friends. And they're in 
this very tense dynamic for her um, for years of her being close to him but not quite close in the way that she'd like to be. Now threaded through this then is this narrative where they meet Sierra and Sierra almost becomes a metaphor for danger. Yeah that's right Uh, it's hard to talk about Sierra too much without giving away um, a lot of the plot because Sierra is a young woman they meet on the first night of schoolies who is very magnetic mysterious they meet her as she's singing on uh, at a party the first night and she convinces them to abandon their traditional schoolies weeks plan and come and camp with her instead on this abandoned island an uninhabited island that no one has been on for 20 years you then underscore this with mythological creatures and references to enhance this sense of danger So you've got uh, the notion of Rusalka. Yes. So one of my favourite parts of writing the novel was I wanted to write about the sea and the beach in summer, one of my favourite places in the world. And I started thinking about all the different ways that the sea and the ocean have appeared in mythology. And the Rusalka was one of my favourite discoveries. So this is a myth that comes from uh, Russia and it's about young women who have died early in violent ways and they live in rivers and once a year for one week they get to emerge and dance on the shore and they try and lure people to come beneath the waves with them. The other reference then, especially since we're on an island, is a spittlesheen. So this is the story of a mythological monster uh, that is in the shape of an island and it lures uh, sailors to come and land. And once the sailors land on the island and start a fire, the heat of them starting their campfire wakes up the monster, which is all um, underneath the waves. And uh, the monster dives underneath and the sailors who've made camp on her back are drowned uh, and that is how she feeds and I love that idea of nature as a living kind of character in the novel. So Grace, Noah, Casper and Elsie meet Sierra for a week and end up camping on an island and therefore we've got those mythological references in the background which is perhaps enough for the reader or listener to imagine what could be happening. Last but not least, then, you have another narrative, Shearwater Island. So you're almost sort of distancing yourself with a third person recounting at the end of each section. Yes, that's right. So the island that all my characters camp on is based on a real place. Um, Shearwater Island is a fictionalised version of this real place. But stories start to develop around this place and you might hear about things that happened there years ago uh, or you know my family has been visiting that beach for a few generations my grandparents were the first so there's lots of family stories that get retold about what happened there in the summers before so in my novel Shearwater Island where the teenagers are camping we also hear about what's happened in the past Um, on Shearwater Island and this one particular group. And there's ways, there's possible ways that I won't say too much about, but there's possible ways that Sierra is connected to those old stories 
of what happened on the island before. And uh, that starts to be revealed through the novel. Well, if the listener and readers want to find out more, they're going to actually have to buy the book before the beginning to find out what Grace, Noah, Casper and Elsie get up to and find out exactly who Sierra is. So, Anna, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So please listen in next week because hopefully David and I will be in the studios of 3CR, 21 Smith Street, and chatting with authors again. So listen in. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.